Let us turn now to consider the words you will find in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 3. Reading from verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. So if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. <coughs> In this chapter, Paul is showing the relationship that exists between those who serve Christ in the church and the church itself. And what he says, in effect, is that the preacher or the minister, the builder, the worker, is just that. He is but an instrument, an agent in the hand of God. What is more, he is a hired servant in the service of the one who owns the church. The servant, he says, does the work which is allotted to him. That work may differ, as he tells us, Apollos may plant, Paul may plant and Apollos water, but God giveth the increase. The work may differ, but in one respect, the work is the same. It is nothing but hired service. God, he says, gives the increase. Another thing he says is that the work brings its fruit. The workman receives a reward. But the fruit or the reward is given by God. And therefore they are only fellow workers, fellow laborers, working, as he says, for God. <coughs> so wherever the gospel is blessed, Every fruit of the gospel ministry is, as he puts it here, God's husbandry, God's work. So that is just another way of saying that the church, that is the body of believers, those who are saved, converted, saved by the grace of God from, a, from the service of sin to the service of Christ, the church is the product of God, it is God's gift. And whatever work a person may do in that vineyard, in that field of service, 
It is always God who gives the increase. Now, in this connection, there are two metaphors that Paul uses here to illustrate what he's talking about. The first is the metaphor of the field, the farm in which the laborer works. God owns the field, and as the owner, it is God who gives the increase in that field. The other metaphor which he uses is the metaphor of the building. And it is that metaphor which he develops from verse 10 and which will be the subject of our, uh, our thoughts here this evening connection with this passage. He, he says, speaking of the members of the Corinthian church, ye are God's building. And then he goes on to speak about the way he himself had operated in Corinth. And he says this, according to the grace of God which is given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. Now what he's saying surely is this, that he had been responsible for laying the foundations of the church in Corinth. He had come in there, the foundations of sea surely is the preaching of the gospel. He had laid the foundation and he had built on that foundation. The building of course, the, the superstructure, if the foundation is Christ and the gospel, the superstructure must be those who were brought into the church through the gospel and were placed in the church as the New Testament tells us as living stones in that building, in that church. Now that's how he had operated. He had laid the foundation, he had brought people through the preach of the gospel or God had brought them into the church and they had been placed by Paul as members in that church. He had come into Corinth but he had moved out. Others had followed him. And so he says, others now build, others carry on that building. And he gives this warning to them that every man take heed how he builds thereupon. And he goes on to speak about the nature of the church in enforcing this warning. He speaks first of all about the foundation of the church. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. So the first warning he issues is this, make sure that the foundation always remains the same. And then the second warning he adds is this, make sure that you use the proper material in the superstructure. So he lists various materials which can be used, not literally, 
applying the message, speaking of the metaphor, he says, people can use for, uh, people can use on this foundation to build on this foundation. They can use gold or silver or precious stones, perhaps marble or wood or hay or straw. They can place in it what they want, what they will. But remember, he says, that there's a day coming which will determine, which will reveal, which will bring to light the quality of the materials which have been used. The day which will come will reveal by fire the nature of that material. And the fire will try, will reveal, will determine every man's work, the builder's work, will determine, will show clearly and publicly what quality was used in the building of this house. And he says that at that day, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. It's quite simple. There's no need to get into any frankness over the application of this teaching, over its meaning. It's a sim Surely it's made abundantly clear for us when we think of the metaphor. What he says is this. If a man places in that building material which is durable and material which is lasting and genuine, he shall receive a reward. Quite clear, isn't it? Again, this is a picture which is painted for us right throughout the Bible, as we shall see in a minute. On the other hand, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. That is, if he's used material which is combustible, if he's used wood or hay or straw, well, that material shall be burned. He will suffer loss. He himself will be saved. Yet so as by fire, but he will not receive the reward anticipated or the reward expected. He's not saying that the man is unconverted, is unsaved. He's not saying the man shouldn't have been a worker, shouldn't have been a builder, shouldn't have been a preacher. What he's saying is this, that if the work that he's brought into the church isn't what it ought to be, he will receive his reward, yet he himself will be saved. And I think that that is a clear teaching of this passage before us tonight. <clears throat> Some years ago, there was a godly woman in this congregation, nearly 40 years ago. She met a minister who was on holiday in the town here, who had preached some sermons in the city of Glasgow. And it was reported that one or two people had been converted through his ministry. She met him on Cromwell Street and said to him, I hear she said that you have some lambs in Glasgow. Speaking, of course, spiritually. And his answer to her was this. Oh, he said, the great day of judgment will tell that. 
And it is with a view to applying this passage in that light. It is with that view that I take it here this evening. So that you and I may question seriously and biblically whether we ought to be in the church of Christ or not. First of all, in seeking to determine an answer to that question, I want to look with you at what is referred to here as the foundation which has been laid and there is no other foundation except what he says here, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now again, we don't have too many problems in trying to understand what this means. Let me give you some well-known texts from the Bible which illustrate the meaning of this verse, I believe. Behold, says the, says the Lord to the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation stone. In the book of Acts, the apostles preached and they said, Neither is there salvation in any other man but in Christ Jesus. Paul, right to Timothy, says, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ the Lord. He himself says, besides me, again the spirit of prophecy, there is no saviour, there is none other. And it was he who spoke, and I use the words advisedly, of the intolerance of the Christian faith in this way, I am the way, the truth and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now I say this to you in all sincerity. To suggest even anything else is totally unbiblical. Even to suggest that there can be any other Savior, that there can be any other way to God, that there can be any other mediator between God and me. To suggest that there can be another is totally contrary to the teaching of the Bible. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christianity, said someone, is the historical realization of the eternal purpose of God. And God's purpose was to save the world through Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ and hence he is presented to us as the Savior God, God in our nature. The Bible tells us when he came into the world, why he came into the world, what he did when he was in this world. It tells of his resurrection from the dead, of his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, of his session at the right hand until he comes again to judge the world. That's what the Bible is all about. That is the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became man and who died in our nature on the cross for our sins and has risen again with power from the dead and is alive in the power of an endless life. This foundation, said C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist minister of the last century in London, is surely that blessed cluster of fundamental doctrines 
which set forth Christ crucified as our salvation. All the truth of God united to Christ and coming to us in Christ. Be it election or justification or sanctification or foreordination or whatever. All in Christ. The foundation of which he spoke when he said to Peter, this, on this foundation, on this rock, will I build my church. Jesus Christ himself and all that the word of God tells us about Jesus Christ. Now you cannot build Christianity or a Christian faith on any other foundation. He is the only saviour, the only head of the church, the only source of the church's life and the only hope that the church has in this world. Her all and in all is the Lord Jesus Christ. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now that is the church's foundation. Now you and I have no problem with that. I'm pretty certain of it. No problems at all. You probably wonder why I took so long to say it. Very well then, I'll move on to the second point. The second point it deals with is the superstructure. The building itself. And I will be the first to agree with you that here now we have more problems than we do when dealing with the foundation itself. If any man build on this foundation, now he's picturing this building going up. And he sees it as a building which is built of either gold and silver and precious stones or wood, hay, stubble. I think this is a contrast. There are two sets here. There's a set of three gold, silver, precious stone. The other set, wood, hay, stubble. Now the difference between the two is this, surely. That one is durable. Gold, silver, precious stones, or marble maybe. The other is combustible. Wood, hay, and straw. Because it's going to speak about that which is going to try this structure at the end of the ages, which is the fire of God at the day of judgment. This building is going to be tested. And what he's saying is this. There are some materials which will stand the test. Others won't. The gold, the silver, the precious stones will abide in and through the fire. Wood, hay, straw, they're going to be burnt up. There'll be nothing left of that building, if that is what it is built, if that is what it is built of. So the idea here, I think, is that of durability compared with what is, uh, with what perishes. The idea of worth compared with what is worthless. And so the point he's is making is this, that the building surely ought to be as worthy as the foundation. It ought to reflect the foundation upon which it is built. Now, I want to bring you back here to the last words of verse 10. Let every man take heed 
how he builds on this foundation. And quite frankly, my friend, and quite simply, there's no point in beating up at the bush, and there's no point in closing your eyes and avoiding this, no point in being an ostrich and putting your head under the sand. What Paul is saying, speaking about quite simply, is this, that we have to be very, very careful who becomes a member of this church. It is, of course, very true, and this application can be made when it is made of it, though I won't make it, that every person must be careful how he builds his own Christian life. But without a shadow of a doubt, the warning here is addressed to the likes of me and to the elders here gathered before me who have the responsibility of admitting people into the church of Christ. And what Paul is saying is this, make sure that you bring the right material into this building. <clears throat> and that's why I said at the outset that everyone who's a member of the church ought to question whether he or she ought to be in the church and ought to ask himself and herself, why am I in it? Why am I in it? Every minister must ask himself, why did I encourage a person to come into it? Every kirk session must ask. Every elder must ask. Why did we admit that person into the Christian church? Now, I'm not introducing into this context something that isn't there. Neither am I introducing into it something that isn't in the Bible. I take as my authority for this application that none other than the Lord himself, who is the foundation of the Christian church, and who says in Matthew 13, over and over again in the chapter we read here, part of which we read in Matthew chapter 7, who says that this is the nature of the church in the world. It is comprised of what? Wheat and tail. There are in this net fish that ought to be there and fish that ought not to be there. There are in the church people who will continue and people who won't. People who will stand before Christ at the day of judgment, people who won't. People who will enter into eternal life and people who won't. That's the nature of the thing. The church is mixed. In it are the true and the false. Many are there who should be there. And according to the Bible there are many there who should not be there at all. The unconverted man, said someone, is better anywhere than in the church. The unconverted man is better anywhere than in the church. Who then, in the light of this context, is to be there? What are we to say of the material that is durable? What is this gold and silver and precious stone? What do we say of the living stone that Peter speaks of who are placed in the church of God by his grace? What do we to say of those of whom Paul speaks in the Ephesians? Ye are his building. And those who are referred to by Jesus in the words of Peter, on this rock will I build my church. Who are they? What is going to abide? What can a person withstand? Well, surely this person, the person who rests his salvation on Christ, 
The personal grounds is acceptance before God on Christ. The person who, who, who knows that he is justified in the presence of God on the basis of what Christ has done for him. The person who perseveres because Christ has said to him, because I live, ye shall live us. The person whose faith is in Christ. The person whose life has been turned round because he has come to love Christ and consequently to hate his sin. The person who draws a spiritual life and sustenance from the Lord Jesus Christ. No, that's not imagined. That's real. That's fact. Because this man again, speaking later on to this very church, said, when you sit at the Lord's table, he said, what you do is, you just show the Lord's death till he come. You're testifying to the world, you're preaching. Be you male or female, you're telling people what? What the death of Christ means to you. That's what you're telling. And surely this has to be said to them together with other things. But they're all is based upon the foundation upon which they are set. And I consider it, therefore, my duty to bring words of warning before you here this evening. Oh, I know full well what people are going to say. I know that full well. But then I have to live with that, as do, my, as do those who labor in the vineyard of Christ. And I think at one point I want to make, before I go any further, so that at least your criticism is tempered, is this. To remember that Paul is here speaking not about sheep, as Jesus said, in wolves' clothing, but he's speaking about men genuinely involved in the work of the kingdom of Christ. Men who came into Corinth after himself and who preached the gospel in Corinth. He's speaking about, no doubt, his fellow apostles. He's not excluding anybody from this. And this context makes abundantly clear that the men who are involved in the building of the church were not unconverted but saved. And the day of judgment is going to prove that they were saved. Though they were going to go into the presence of Christ minus the reward that they themselves expected. The reward was burnt up in the great conflagration of the day of judgment. So at least let that temper your criticism because I know that it would be leveled against me. But I also know this, and I say this in all honesty before God, that this sermon tonight was not born in my mind as a result of what has been going on in Scotland in the past week at all. God is my witness to that. I would far rather see the gospel of Christ being highlighted on the television than much of what goes with pop culture today. My soul rejoices when I see and hear and read of people who are genuinely saved by the grace of God. God is my witness. And I hope that I love any man who preaches the gospel of Christ and in whose preaching Christ is central. Having said that, it is necessary for us 
from time to time to look at our own standing in relation to the cross and in relation to the gospel and in relation to the church and ask, am I a genuine member of the church of Jesus Christ? And I would like therefore to, 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 to bring before you one or two words of counsel. And the first is this. Make sure, and this applies to, and you remember something else, that this applies to the likes of me more than to anybody else because I hope that I'm a builder in the church of Christ. And I will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I will present myself there. And I will have to answer, as every office bearer in the church has to answer, and every minister in the church will have to answer, for those whom we brought into the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, my friend, I would say this to you. Beware that you don't confuse natural religious feelings with the supernatural. And whatever else grace, whatever else conversion is, it is the supernatural work of the grace of God in the heart of the individual. But there is a natural religious feeling. Of course there is. We are all religious says the Bible. There are some more religious than others. And you know that it is very easy to produce a natural religious feeling which falls short of a supernatural work of the grace of God. And secondly, beware of confusing strong natural religious feelings with the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit. Those who are those who are products of the revivals here in the island of Lewis will tell you. And there are some people present, no doubt, who were in the revivals who were not saved. But they will tell you that the atmosphere and the influence of that revival affected them. They felt it. Now what they felt was natural. And it fell short of the supernatural because it didn't produce in them the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit. And then <clears throat> beware that you recognize the application of the truth by the Holy Spirit to your mind. Now there are many people in the Church of Christ and I'm one of them who believe that this is the way in which the Spirit of God works. He applies the truth through the mind to the heart. To the heart. Now I'm not saying by that that every person who's converted knows everything about the truth. But what I am saying to you is this, that sufficient light comes with the truth to the mind to convince them that they are sinners who need a saviour who convince them, and this after all is Jesus' definition of conviction of sin. When the Spirit of Calm has come, he will convince of sin because they do not believe in me. And through the mind, the realization dawns that I am a sinner who needs a Savior. The Savior is the Savior presented by the, Lord, by, by the Word of God. I can come to him as I am drawn by the Spirit of God. And I can only believe in him as I am enabled by God to believe. 
because faith is the gift of God. I know that, and I grasp that, and I cry to God in my need, save me. Give me, or put it another way, give me the faith that will enable me to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. <clears throat> then, the other warning I would, ad- I would address to you is this. Beware of confusing emotional response with the winning of the will for Christ. Beware of confusing sympathy with others as sympathy for yourself. Again, I claim as my authority the Lord, Jesus Christ, who on the road to, the, to Calvary or to Golgotha said to the women of Jerusalem, women of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Another warning I would address. And this, I'm afraid, has been something which has crept into this island over the past number of years. That you beware of, 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 of thinking that a biblical commitment to Christ is following a manual that gives you set rules and set principles and set guides for following Christ. For example, and this is nothing new here. Read this. Learn this. Say this and pray this. And people are led to believe that if they do these things, they are brought into the kingdom of Christ. Coming back to this thing that I mentioned of confusing emotional response to the winning of the will for Christ. This is connected with the necessity of bringing the truth to bear upon the understanding. Now, of course, I know that as preachers, there are means which we have to employ to get people to listen to the truth, to listen to the gospel. When I'm preaching, for example, eh, I find it extremely difficult to preach to people who switch off. So I consider it my responsibility to switch them on. I don't like people eh, falling asleep, though I have sympathy with them under the preaching of the gospel. And I don't like seeing people distracted and people talking to one another when I'm preaching. I don't like to see people looking at the ceiling or looking at the window or examining the structure of the church or so on, or perhaps the person beside them and the person in front of them, and even occasionally the people behind them. Because you get the impression that people are switching off. So a preacher has to keep his eye on these things. He's in this great business of communicating the truth making the truth relevant and making the truth intelligent and intelligible. So very often one of the best ways of getting people's attention is tell them a story. Use an illustration. There are times when a story can be quite telling. A story can be quite moving. I heard a minister once saying to a huge congregation, shortly after my own conversion, if I wanted, he said, I could move this congregation to tears. And I believed him. But you could do it. 
Have I told here tonight a very touching story about a mother on her deathbed and a son who was with her? And I told her with feeling and with emotion myself. I wouldn't be surprised though many people here who would shed tears. But the point I want to make is this. That you've got to be very, very careful that you don't confuse or equate an emotional response to the will being one for Christ. Another one I want to speak about is that you avoid the danger of thinking that because you who have been troubled by a particular enslaving sin in your life, that because you have been enabled to break from that enslaving sin, that you equate that with the peace of the gospel of Christ in your soul. I'm sure that for a person whose life has been made a misery and who has made other people's lives a misery as well through enslaving sin when that person is enabled to turn away from it and to reform his or her life it comes as a great relief to that person and to those connected with him. But my friend, that is not the peace of the gospel. Very often, the euphoria and the experience that comes with that dies away. And then, what are you left to lean on? Your own resolve? Your own commitment? your own breath or Christ you see the point that the apostle is making here is surely this only a point that Jesus made over and over again make sure that the basis of all your hope and the foundation of all your peace is Jesus Christ the Lord oh my friend we have all to guard against the danger of self-deception. And though I'm more aware, as I said earlier, that those comments of mine may lead people to criticize, I'm sure that for the genuine believer in Christ, it will lead him and her to self-examination and to prayer for diligence in their relationship to Christ. It will lead them to fear lest they are not genuine and lead them to take account of this that they themselves are built on the right foundation. Finally and very briefly there is a third point that Paul here deals with and it is the fire that is to come to test every man's work. Now some of you may be present here from the Roman Catholic persuasion. Some may have some connection with the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm sure that you know as well as I know that a part of your church's teaching on purgatory is built upon these verses. And I would say to you in all honesty and with all sincerity that that is a misguided application of these words. Because the fire that Paul is here speaking about is not a fire that is going to purge but a fire that is going to discover. The fire isn't going to clean anybody. 
the fire is going to destroy some and it's going to reveal others it is therefore not purifying in any way it is the fire of discovery and the fire of judgment and the picture you have here is a picture of as well of a fire sweeping through a building and leaving behind it only the foundation and the durable part of the structure when is this going to happen he refers to three times the day shall declare it and this is none other of course on the day of judgment it's appointed god has appointed a day in which you will judge this world he has begun a good work which you will bring on to the day of jesus christ in that day says the new testament you will see the difference between the counterfeit and the real on that day the day of judgment and that day is going to be a comp- and that day is going to be accompanied or the judgment will be accompanied with fire now remember that the language here is figurative what he speaks about is this that the divine character with whom we have to deal will reveal himself in this way in time it speaks of the ordeal of the judgment and strangely enough there is no organization on earth that we more exposed to the fire of judgment than the church of god itself the church is not being going to be excluded from the judgment we will all appear before the judgment seat of christ and that is why i quoted someone who said earlier who said it were better for the unconverted man to be anywhere than in the church of christ because that person will be destroyed he will be burnt up and he will be declared he says again in three uses three words in this in verses 13 and 14 the day every man's worship made manifest the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire there will be a public manifestation to all who are gathered there the discovery will be made to everyone as to who was genuine and who was not now as i said earlier it is not always possible to make that assessment accurately in this world there are times when it is absolutely impossible and mistakes are quite genuinely made you've heard of some people who said that they've got a glimpse into heaven they were surprised at some of the people that they saw and they were dismayed at some that they didn't see at all no be that as it may there is no doubt whatsoever but that the bible makes this emphasis that some will be quite genuinely accepted as member of the church in this world who are not genuine at all the day will declare it every man's work of what sort it is will be tried the value of what he did in this world the value of my work and the value of their work and the value of every other man's work will be declared in that day because the membership 
of the church of Christ will be tested by the holy, searching, penetrating inquest of God the judge. Oh, the solemnity that applies to this. And the reason, my friend, why everyone in this building tonight ought to ask, whose am I? In what relationship do I stand to the church? Ought I to be there? What do I have? My advice to you and to me is this. Come first to Christ and then to the church. Come first. By the church, I don't mean the building. I hope you don't misunderstand me. I mean the membership of the church of Christ on earth. Every man, he says, will receive his reward. The preacher, and this is what, it's, this is what he says, the preacher of whom he's speaking of here, the preachers rather, are genuine, converted men who have, a, who have a, an interest in and a concern for the cause of Christ. And these are verses which strike terror into my very bones. The preacher will be saved, but his work will be destroyed. And the picture you have quite simply is this. Some will stand there with the reward. Others will stand there as it were alone. Their work is a result. But they themselves shall be saved as if by fire as if he were saying this as though it were by the skin of their teeth now then I don't think that any minister recognizing the responsibility of preaching the gospel and the responsibility of assessing the commitment and the confession and the profession of people who are brought in through his ministry I don't think that any minister could have the temerity to stand in a pulpit and find fault with any other minister. The searchlight must turn upon himself. So, my friend, if you were tempted to leave this building tonight, and perhaps with a smirk on your face, and say, ha, I wondered when he was going to get at Billy Graham. You wipe the smirk off your face because it's not of him I'm talking, but of myself. It's not of those who heard him that I'm speaking, but of you who hear me. It's not of those who made a claim of commitment anywhere else to Christ that I'm addressing these words to. It's to you in this church in Stornoway, in your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the gospel bids you believe, and it's you who have to answer the question, am I a believer in Christ? 
What gives me an interest in the church? What brings me here? Why the interest in religion and the things connected with it? I plead with you, make sure above all else of this, that your heart is set on him, that your will is one for him. Because at the end of the day, no matter what you have, or who you are, or where you've come from, or what change has come into your life, unless it is a change from nature to grace, from a state of unbelief to a state of faith in Christ, if you stand at the day of judgment with all who have preached the gospel to you, you will be destroyed, but they will be saved. Ah, oh, my friend, surely it behoves you and me tonight to pray to God, search me and try me and save my soul and make me a real, genuine member of the church which is built upon Christ. Let us pray. Have mercy upon our souls, we beseech thee. Bless us with thy presence and with thy peace. And make thyself known to us in the power of thy saving supernatural grace. And the praise shall be thine in Christ. Amen. <coughs> Psalm 50